Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. This week, we're playing a team format. Here's how the game works. I play a song for a team of three comprised of former Guest of the Year contestants. After the song concludes, they will discuss and ultimately submit a single guess of the live track's year. However many years off they are is their team score for that round. If they nail the year exactly, they get zero points. If they're one year off, they get one point, and so on. After five songs, however many years off they were in total is their team's score for the game. On the next episode, I'll play the same five live tracks for another team of three. Whichever team has the lower score wins a prize pack of Guess the Year shirts. Unlike the main tournament, where the winner stays on, these are one-off matches. We'll meet the Deadheads in a moment, but first, without further ado, The Grateful Dead. Joseph is 37 from New York. He was runner-up on episode five. Joseph, what year are you thinking? Yeah, the drums seemed a little muddy, um, but I think it was one, and that narrows it down to 73, 74. And between those, it's a, for me, it's always a kind of a toss-up. I can't hear the wall of sound microphone difference as well as some other people can. Okay, Jared is 50 from Centennial. He was runner-up on episode six. Jared, what are your thoughts? Right when I hear Weather Report, I go straight to 80 and then work my way either up or down because they played it every show in 80. And I worked down and down and down and down. And it just, it sounded like a 73, so I went straight to the drummers. Yeah, it was hard to hear too. Just that one kind of sounded like it could have been too. And lastly, Kyle is 47 from Chicago. Kyle won episodes two and three. So Kyle, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, that was originally on Wake of the Flood, right? 
and that would have been a 73 release. So my thought though, is that it doesn't have the nasally wall of sound microphone sound. So it could be a 73 prior to the wall of sound coming along, but I wasn't as confident on the single drummer. Like it was, I was really listening and I was just like, at points I thought, Billy's style is very different when it's single drummer. He's really like jazzy and, and he's really like clear in the mix. So this one, like he's a little more like sticking in the pocket and just kind of keeping it on the beat, which is a little different than he's usually like swinging jazz style in the, in the single drummer years. But I'll still stick with 73 because at most we'll get fucked and it'll be 76. <laughs> I'm in it with you. Joseph, yeah. tiebreaker. Yep, I'm all good. Do, 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 do. <laughs> okay, it is locked in. Let it grow at the Selen Arena in Fresno, California on July 17th, 1974. <sighs> One year off, a very good place to start. You know, you're not like 13 years off or anything. So The night is young. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's play the second song. like a diamond I jack a leaf of all colors plays golden straight fit up to a double he waterfall over my back Joseph, what's your first thought there? That sounds lighter, um, 90s maybe. And that's not an era that I listened to a ton of. Uh, I was trying to hear if there was, was Bruce in there. Was that a Bruce and Vince situation, which you know I love? <laughs> that was my first thought, though. But I could be way off. That was a tough one. I no, couldn't hear couldn't. Bob in the mix that well, to be honest. That um, that that counter melody that he's playing, 
was like super low. So I couldn't really analyze his tone and his tone in these years is typically very distinct. Kyle, did you hear that same range? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was thrown a little bit because it didn't sound like Brent's keyboard, but there were some riffs that sounded like Brent, but then there were some riffs that didn't sound like Brent. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. is this a Vince trying to be like Brent? Uh, and the Bob thing being buried too is is also kind of like weird because his tone is easier to spot, you know, for me. Uh, and that's a very distinct riff, you know, with his later guitars, it's very uh, distinct. So first I was thinking late 80s with Brent, but then, I don't know, some of those riffs just weren't sounding both the actual keyboard sound. And I don't know what kind of piano sound they wound up with Vince. Like I, I really tuned out in the Vince years. I know that he had that stupid carnival organ that I hated, uh, which like it drove me fucking crazy. Every time I heard it, I was like, who's in charge here? I know you guys are hopping, you know, Scotchgard back there, but like who thought this was a good tone for I didn't get it. Wasn't there an element of like Jerry saying he can't have the same tone as Brent or whatever because it made him sad? I've, I've read that. Maybe that's apocryphal. Yeah, but... I, I did hear that as well. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, Jerry famously switched the stage placement so he could be next to Brent and those two played off each other constantly you know it was a really uh perfect combo when when Jerry and and Brent would lock in you know and I feel very fortunate that I did get to see them in the Brent years because this fucking magical thing would happen where they would just lock in and Brent was really like a big part of that more so than I expected you know I I liked the tapes of him and then when I went and saw him live I was like okay now I get it like, this dude's a motherfucker. Jared, so it seems like it's a Brent versus Vince versus Bruce and Vince. What's your gut telling you? My gut's telling me it wasn't the finest plane. Um, <laughs> there was some good highlights. Uh, it definitely ha- had to be Vince. Um, just because it was kind of discombobulated. Right when it first started, before Jerry sang, I was like, this must be early 80s with you know, new Brent, because it wasn't quite there. And then when you heard Jerry's voice, you're like, either he is the sickest he's ever been on stage, or that's like a 92, 93. Jerry's licks were still had the speed to it, though, when that solo that towards the end was really nice. So he didn't have that speed clicking in the 94, 95. Couldn't pull it off. I agree with Jared. I think it's more Vince than Brent. But it's tough because there's no... There's no yeah. harmony. There was but no the harmony. Bobby thing, the Bobby usually has, when he plays his rhythms, it's this, it's almost like he is playing like a distortion that's like Metallica and he doesn't sustain the notes and you couldn't hear Bobby at all. Can we all agree there's, it wasn't two pianos? It was either Brent or Vince? Yeah, there wasn't enough, one. there wasn't enough going on for it to be two. Man, that raises the stakes even more. I know you really yeah. fucked us on this one. Like, <laughs> I'm leaning towards the uh, the Vince. I think Joseph swung me on it being Vince, and the I guess I'll, I think that's just due to this the sound of the keyboard being different, and and some of it like it sounded like somebody like if you see a dead cover band and then they like know their Brent licks, they can sound like Brent for like a little bit, but then the longer the passage goes on, they might reveal that they're not Brent at some point. And I think that's what happened there. I think he had some of the Brent stuff down, but the longer he played, I was like, ah, there's Vince. 
That's a good analogy. But early Vince, like 93, like right after Bruce left, but not, I mean, 94, 95, they were pretty fucked up and not really uh, together. That seemed like a little more pep to their step. Yeah, Jerry's licks, like it sounded like he was still motoring like he was. I, the first show that comes to mind where he was motoring was the of the late 90s. It was 93 Chapel Hill. He could still get his fingers moving and clicking. He wasn't cheating licks, you know, a lot of pull-offs. I think if we're smart, we might lean more towards 92 because... I agree with you. It's not going to be too late. And then if we fucked up the other direction, we're going to be like, giving ourselves a little buffer on the road. I hear what you're saying, man. Yo. They got to play the game. <laughs> okay, Joseph, so 92? 92. We're all turning the key. Jared or Kyle, speak now or forever hold your peace. I will oh, concur. My peace. Okay. It was China Cat Sunflower at Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California on October 2nd, 1987. That like hurts. Probably one of the first shows after his coma then. That's why he sounded so bad. His voice. I mean, I like 87 yeah. too. So it was a weird mix for, for the 80s. Jerry's voice sounded a little 80s though. He wasn't as thrashed out as it would have been in the 90s. But uh, the keyboard really on that particular cut, the keyboard is what really threw me. Okay. Team Joseph, Jared, and Kyle has six points going into the third round. Let's hear the third song. Kyle, you're messenger on this one. Uh, what are your first thoughts? I'm thinking early, like 67 early uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's single drummer. I only hear pig pen, so there's no Tom in there yet uh, that I could pick out. I think he came in 68. Uh, Jerry sounds like he's playing his, his Les Paul with P90s in it. 
which probably means nothing to all of you except perhaps Joseph. Got me. Uh, what is a P90? A P90 is a type of pickup. Uh, Jerry experimented with a lot of different guitars in in that era, and uh, he had a Les Paul with P90s, and he had a Les Paul with humbuckers. The Les Paul with humbuckers is like the the Jimmy Page slash uh, sort of thing, and the P90s are a little bit different. They're a little hotter. They're like single coil, but they sound more like humbuckers, but they got more like bite to them. And when he was doing the da -na 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 -na, like there was a lot more like snap and kind of bite to it. I don't know. I mean, he bounced around guitars a lot in that era. I'm right with you with the year. I'm thinking like 76 through 79. I'm maybe thinking of 68 as just kind of playing the game and within those years. Um, that was early. I'm thinking like pre-68, oh, yeah. just because I think by then they, I mean, Mickey came onto the scene, I think in 68, Tom was probably on there by then. And Pigpen was pretty laid back. Like he might not have been as confident as Chops as he was, you know, a couple of years later, you know, on the organ. So Jared, what do you think? Yeah, 67, 68 for sure. Um I haven't heard too much 68 recently, but I don't recall him waving his voice like that on anything in 68, 67, where he's like, like totally the Elvis. <laughs> it was too funny, man. I was like, oh my God, I never heard him do the Elvis voice. Um, I would I would definitely go with Kyle and go 67. It could even be as early as 66, but I think we'd be fucking ourselves going too low. Yeah, I agree. Uh, 67 at least will keep us plus or minus a couple. I just can't see it being much later than that. Are there any objections from the team? Mm -mm. I didn't mean to answer for you, Joseph. Just none from me. <laughs> no, I think uh, Kyle's breakdown of the 60s piano players is spot on. It didn't sound like, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it didn't sound like incredibly sophisticated, intricate organ playing. So that would make sense that it was just pig pen and not TC yet. Um. Do you, do you play guitar, Kyle? <laughs> that break I do, yeah. of the pickups yeah, yeah. was like I build so them too. Up. So like I I uh, I'm oh, always shit. trying to you know unravel what I'm listening to. You know, we discussed a little bit. You know, the Bob guitars, and you know, the primary thing to listen to. We didn't get too deep into it because we didn't have another guitar nerd on there. But since we have you now, Joseph, I'll elaborate. <laughs> so Bob in this in the '70s, he was playing the ES-335 and then the Ibanez. And those are yeah. guitars with humbuckers. Yeah. And like I said with the Les Paul, humbuckers have like kind of a fatter, almost like darker sound. Think Jimmy Page, think Slash, as opposed to like a Strat, which is single coil pickups, which are like brighter and kind of clearer. More think jazzy. Jimmy and Steve Ray Vaughan, yeah. Well, in the 70s, Jerry was playing single coils, both on Alligator and then the original incarnation of Wolf, which was basically a... a a copy of a Stratocaster. In the 80s, they switched. Jerry started working humbuckers into the mix, and Bob switched over to the like modulus style guitars, which were three single coils, almost like a Strat. So between the 70s and the 80s, Bob and Jerry switched sounds by switching from single coil to humbucker and vice versa. So that was what I was kind of getting at with the Bob thing. You can hear whether it's a humbucker, the fatter, kind of warmer sound of the 335 and the Ibanez or whether it's into the 80s where he's got that sharper clearer single coil thing going on yeah 100 <laughs> percent. kyle uh, do you see that 
someone remade Wolf for John Mayer? I did see that. Yeah, there are a couple people in the the sort of boutique guitar world uh, that do some really good Jerry uh, rebuilds. I mean, like they cost like twenty grand or twenty five grand. The dude who made the one for John Mayer, I think, used to work for Doug Irwin or something. He was somehow like closer to the circle than. Uh, yeah, there seems to be some connection there. I think Doug Irwin's like um, partnered with them in some way or something. So they can kind of, they're using his designs when they build. I'm actually, <laughs> sorry to like go on on this, but I'm actually piecing together an alligator right now. What? With the, uh, with the strata blaster in it? Yeah. So the wiring is the one spot that I'm kind of going to go my own personal style. I'm going to put a blender pot in so I can bleed in the bridge to the neck. I, I To be honest, I pretty much only use the neck pickup because I'm going for generally like a warmer, fatter sound. So, but a bleed, um, a blender will let me kind of bring in that brighter bridge sound or vice versa, kind of warm up the bridge, which is usually too bright. But other, other yeah, from- the David Gilmore mod. Yeah, yeah. There's Brent We're Mason. Is... He, he, he doesn't do it with the blender. He does it with just a switch. But that's his oh, little mini toggle. If you look at David Gilmore's famous black strat, he has what they call yeah. a sunken switcher. And it's just a little, the little nub sticking up. But when you flip it, it automatically turns on your neck pickup no matter what position you're in. So okay. if you're in your position one bridge only, you flip that switch. And now you're basically getting a bridge and a... Uh, neck together but i agree with you the neck pickup on a strat that's the money shot like the, yeah the strat neck pickup is beautiful yeah i i don't ever change with a telecaster too to be honest i know that's probably sounds bad for all the country players but like i only use the neck pickup so you're not actually building like you're hiring someone like kyle to build the guitar right you're not doing this you're just telling them what piece do you, you do this kyle <laughs> can i hire yeah yeah you? i do i uh <laughs> i uh so like back in the, in the eighties, when I was in high school, I had a couple like shitty garage bands and, uh, you know, we didn't have any like money for anything. So we got pretty good at building our own things, you know, swapping pickups. Like we couldn't afford to pay somebody to switch out a pickup. So we'd trade some like bud for a pickup or something. And then we'd like figure it out. My buddy was like a gearhead, So he knew how to solder because of putting like car stereos and Chevelles from like, you know, the sixties and seventies. So he had some rudimentary soldering skills. So we figured out how to swap out pickups. And that was like a game changer for us. Cause that, you know, you can really do a lot. Uh, Cause if you can solder, you can switch pickups, you can switch with pots. You can uh, take a guitar that only has a tone and a volume and make it two volumes, two tones. You can add pots. You can, you can do anything you want. And that was where it started just getting cooler and more interesting until pretty soon you're just building the whole thing because yeah. uh, you're stuck with somebody else's design. You know, when you start modding that strat, you're going to realize why he outsourced to Doug Irwin because Alligator, he had kind of, he had done all the modifying he could do within that frame. So in order to uh, expand on that, he had to have like a custom built guitar where he could have more of the switchers in there and the, the different knobs and such that he liked. And his preamp thing, this, they call it the Stratoblaster. It was an Alembic design. But that's how he did his uh, onboard effects loop, where he didn't lose any of his juice. 
So it would, it's kind of, you know how that system works? I don't know if we're going to like put your audience to sleep with this. Uh, no, I love it. This is what this is hole. for. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. All right. So what Jerry does is in the design, the pickups pick up the sound and he sends it out to his effects. And the reason he does that first is because if you, if you send your, your signal out of your guitar in all of your pedals and then into the amp, as you change your volume and tone on the guitar, you're throwing off the sound more because of how it's going through the, the pedals. So what he did is he designed, and I believe he's been credited as the first person who came up with this. He told Irwin and those guys or Parrish or uh, any of like Rick Turner, the guys from Alembic, they were all really kind of like dead employees in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm thinking it goes out of the guitar where he gets all of his uh, tone changes and such. It goes through all of the effects, the envelope filter, his uh, distortion pedal, anything like that. And then it comes back into his guitar. And that's why he's got the two outputs on it. If you look at like Tiger, he's got dueling chords in the back. So one of them is going to the pedals. And then the second one is coming back from the pedals and going uh, into his volume control. And as you know, playing guitar, as you change your volume, that changes your tone a lot. You know, the really good players, the old school guys, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Clapton, they didn't have a ton of pedals. They used their tone knob and their volume knob as pedals. Crank the volume to 10, you get a more distorted sound. You dial it back, it cleans it up. It sounds very different. Jerry designed this thing so he wouldn't lose the tone of the signal as he added the pedals to the mix. And that was a total like game changer. And he did it with this little preamp booster and an onboard effects loop. When you say you build guitars, does that mean you have like a saw and a sander and you're actually building a guitar or do you buy it in pieces and assemble the pieces you want? I mean, my whole thing is like, unless you build the neck, it's pretty much what you would call like a parts caster where you're getting various parts together. But you can do a lot of, you know, unique custom stuff within that. So like I've got a, a strat I built behind me. Uh, one of the cool things Erwin did is when he gave Jerry the, the wolf, he had that brass bracket holding the pickups and the original version of wolf that he got in 73 had three single coil pickups like a strat but he gave him a second plate that had humbuckers in it and he didn't use it right away but he eventually did where he had the option you've got three pickup slots you could put a single coil or a humbucker in any of the three so like a fender stratus three single coil pickups you can have one with like a humbucker in the bridge or, you know, shake it up. That's a super cool design because it opens people up to the idea that you can do something different. You don't have to just buy what's on the rack. And the one I have behind me, uh, I have a Strat neck single coil in the, in the neck. I have a PAF unwaxed uh, PAF in the middle. And then I have a P90 in the bridge which is an unusual combination because it's like one of each. It's kind of like a Swiss army knife. And I, I'd never seen that combo. And then you go on Reddit and you say, I'm thinking about doing this. And everybody tells you what an asshole you are for even thinking <laughs> you could do that. So I was like, well, I like a challenge. Of course I'm going to do that. That's awesome. Um, so 1967, huh? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, where are we? Yeah. What is, what's going on? I was thinking about that like 10 minutes ago. I'm like, did we get that one right? <laughs> yeah. It's funny because it's going to be like Jerry and Bob on all single coil pip- pickups by our, um, going by our luck. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I can tell you that it was morning due at Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles on November 10th, 1967. Boom. That was really impressive. Your score remains six. And I'm going to play the next song, the fourth out of five songs. Lay down, my dear brother, lay down and take your rest. Won't you lay your head upon your Savior's breast? I need love you above. Jesus loves you the best, and I bid you good night, good night, good night, good night, and I bid you good night, good night, good night, and I bid you good night, good night, good night, and I bid you good night, good night, lay down, my dear brothers. Lay down and take your rest. I want you lay your head upon your Savior's breast. I need love you, oh, but Jesus loves you the best. And I bid you good night, good night, good night. And I bid you good night, good night. Walking in Jerusalem just like John Good night I remember right well I remember right well Good night Good night Rollins love should comfort me Good night That's how you get back at Guitar Nerds Play a song without guitar yeah, man. <laughs> That's so there brutal. was a guitar. He was tuning it through the song, but there was a guitar. Uh, I think it's Jared. You're the one to give your first thoughts. Holy cow. Jerry sounded young. Bobby sounded young. Phil sounded old. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually go with the 76 for that sound. Just have nothing to go off of. <laughs> Colin Joseph. On that particular one, I'm thinking like 68, 69-ish. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's too far into the 70s. We don't have any like Donna or anything yet. Uh, yeah, you got a point on that. One thing that was throwing me is the uh, ambient sound of the clapping echo implied it was a pretty big place. Like they're not playing, you know, a 200-seater. Like that sounded like the winterland size clapping in the background. Did it? You mean there's that many people clapping or could yeah, it have been and, like and just, in Alaska where it was a basketball stadium and it was just the, echoey because <laughs> it didn't seem like they were on time on the beat, if you knew what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it could have been echoey. I was like, huh, well, that wouldn't be. It reminded me of this, the part in uh, the Grateful Dead movie from the Winterland 74 shows where they're doing like the Sunshine Daydream part and they're like, boom, Sunshine Daydream. And then you hear the crowd coming in and clapping the the beat to it and it has that ambient echo of a larger room and i was picking up that so i would venture gotcha. to guess like this a 71 was recorded or at winterland. Oh, so okay. i'm thinking this was like a winterland caliber place five thousand 
seats. And I just don't know when they started playing Winterland. I mean, it was local San Francisco and they were, you know, popular. So they could have been playing there as early as 68, probably. I mean, I know they still had the Fillmore West at that time, but that was a smaller place. The Fillmores wouldn't have had an echo like that. Joseph, do you have a feel? Well, I did notice the audience sound. Um, to me, I attributed to that being like one of the earlier years. I didn't hear Donna, but to be honest, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure I've listened to like one of these with Donna. So I'm not even would she be in it or not? I'm assuming yeah, I don't she even would know. be. Of course, yeah. Um, I thought your point, your point was funny and true that they sound young, but Phil, I don't know. When I first heard this, I thought it was much later because I was trying to pick out the individual uh, singers and Phil just sounded older. I don't know. <laughs> so that was funny. Um, if I had to guess going on the no Donna thing, I would probably guess um, 69 through 71, maybe even on the later side of that. But it's also weird, like what years they actually played this song versus years they didn't. Like, I don't know if they played it every year pre-hiatus. They might have skipped years within those years. Bobby's voice sounded so amazing that he had to be really young. Like, I couldn't tell who it was. I was like, is that a girl singing? Because yeah, his falsetto was so good. When did they work with, wasn't it David Crosby? Was that in 71? Working on, like, singing lessons? Yeah, they, he came in and kind of coached him on how to do the harmonies, and they were all trying to hit different notes. That was definitely after David Crosby, which I think was 71. Even earlier, I think, uh, like, teacher children, because... I think like they might've cut the teacher children track in 69. Gotcha. That's when, you know, that's when, according to Steve Parrish, he gave Jerry alligator as a thank you gift for playing the pedal steel on teacher children in late gotcha. 69. What do you think? Should we split and go 70? How familiar are you two with the 78 new year's show where they, uh, with the blues brothers and all that, the closing of winter. Didn't Bill yeah. Graham come down on a joint or something? Yeah. So they they played it that night, and then they didn't play it again until that Alpine Valley show I was at. They dusted that off for the first 89. time in a decade in 89. But I think they had kind of hung it up in the 70s. I think that that New Year's Fillmore or the New Year's Winterland 78 was like a special occasion. I don't think they'd been playing it a lot up to that point. Yeah. There was no any keyboard that I could Yeah, there wasn't any, any keyboard either. Any harmonies coming from the keyboarder, like... So you couldn't, there was only three voices. Yeah. And they started playing that song early. I mean, that could have been any one of their early years. I think they were busting that out and then even earlier than, I mean, they could have been playing that in 66, 67 too. So it really opens up the options on the low end. You don't got anything, Kyle, from his guitar, that little bit of Bobby guitar that you could hear? The only thing guitar wise I heard was one of them tuning. They were like tuning it. Maybe they played a second encore after that or something because it sounded like he was tuning up for perhaps Bobby was future trying, years. kind of doing a finger picking thing. It might have been Jerry. If, if it was Jerry, then it would have been a really clean one. Or it would have been, well, I don't know. What do you, I'm going, I want Kyle to be the point. I'd go with 70 myself. Be careful he, what you wish for. I know. <laughs> there wasn't a ton of shows. 
and there wasn't much going on. Like there was yeah. no keyboard, there was no drumming, there was no Donna, there was Bob, Jerry, and Phil singing a little bit of strumming. And then the, the thing that kind of like threw me the most was the ambient sound and playing. It was a big room. I'm leaning earlier than 70, but 70 might be uh, a reasonable strategically to pick. If it's a lot later, at least we're closer. Yeah, plus or minus would be uh, less devastating. Yeah. What do you think, Joseph? Do we do that? I'm going um, solely based on the fact that there's no Donna. So I'm thinking the latest it could be is 71. And the earliest it could be is 68, 69. So 70 sounds reasonable to me. Okay. We bid you good night at Harper College in Binghamton, New York on May 2nd, 1970. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> that was fucking cool watching you guys figure that one out. That was sick. What a display. After the the ro- the speed bump on uh, on the 87 China Cat, putting up double zeros. Very impressive. We've got one more song for you guys. I'm going to play it. Vince and Bruce, I heard, you know, a little wimpy pia, wimpy organ, kind of a little buried more. The piano was more prominent. Vince was confirmed in the vocals. Yes. Uh, they Even played... Bruce in the vocals, it kind of sounded like too. Yeah. Uh, here's an interesting question. Who do you think was the most talented musician in the dead? Uh, Jerry. <laughs> you think so? Jerry or Vince? I mean, not Vince. I'm sorry, Brent. <laughs> I mean, his tube shit was awesome. No, Jerry or Brent. But I mean, like music, I mean, the fact that he plays five instruments and could play live and extremely entertain an audience with all of them is amazing. To me, picking the best musician, like music, command of music, theory, they're innovative, what they bring to the table, what bag of like tricks they have to pull from. Jerry has a very deep reservoir to pull from, mm-hmm. but so does Phil. You know, Phil is like a classically, classically trained, trained right? jazz background. I mean, he was like, what, like an avant-garde jazz trumpet player. So he would have been more like Miles Davis than he would have been a rock musician when they met him. 
playing yeah. like jazz trumpet. Yeah, he didn't even play bass. Yeah, they're, it was I like, mean, oh, we need they're a like, bass You're going to play for us and you're going to play well. <laughs> he plays um, bass like a lead guitar, basically. He plays a nonstop guitar solo through the entire show, which to me is awesome. I mean, it's like perfect. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I first started listening to The Dead, Bob was the instrument that really stood out to me. I thought his playing was, I'd never heard like a rhythm guitar player sound anything close to what he sounded like. You know, you hear uh, lead guitars played lead guitar solos, but Bob's was just so unique that I was like completely blown away by it. And that was for uh, early on, that's when I spent the most focus is just listening to his guitar, especially like the pre-hiatus 72 through 74, where he's he's got that 335. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he's got that warm tone and it just sounds great. Um, and then as I started playing more, I started real, like, well, sorry, to back up a step, Bob's sound is very unique as a guitar player. And then I got into Jerry more and realized how unique as a lead guitar player in kind of popular rock and roll music that he is, you know, kind of the choices that he makes playing through changes with scales, all that type of stuff. <laughs> and then more recently, when I've discovered Phil, I've had the same realization that all three of them are like so completely unique when it comes to this style of music um, that you can't understate any of their contributions. It's the three of them have like such a unique sound, which I think is, uh, I don't know. Trey Anastasio has an interesting quote about Jerry. He said, uh, as good as you think Jerry is, he's even better than you think. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like, you know, even if you recognize him as a great player, somebody who really knows music, like Joseph Caliber, like trained, you know, like I'm just a dickhead who fucks around in his room. I'm not like a trained musician. So when you hear somebody like Trey or somebody who, you know, went to Berkeley and, you know, these high end, uh, you know, conservatories, like they're just in a different caliber. If you ever listen to like Rick Beato, you know, his, his, uh, his music YouTube channel, he's got like perfect pitch, you know, they'll start playing something and he'll tell you like the chord they're playing, the notes they're playing. I mean, I would love to play Rick Beato some of the Bob Weir stuff because I can't figure out what he's doing. I mean, I agree with you, Joseph, that shit is out there. He's so unique. He's so interesting. And I need somebody to like cut it into baby bites for me because I just don't get it. To call him a rhythm guitar player, I think is sort of unfair because he's so much more than that. When Joseph said there's nobody you can compare him to, you know, that's really true. The only person in some ways similar is the edge because of the way they can like let chords ring out. And there's a really good YouTube video. It's a Greek theater. The August Greek theater shows in 89. Bob, uh, he was having a problem with his equipment and he told <laughs> the guy to, to uh, record an isolated track. And there's a YouTube, if you just YouTube Bob Weir isolated, it's the Greek theater in 89 and the band is like super, super low in the mix. Like you can tell what they're playing, but Bob is full volume. And uh, you pick up two things. One, he's so minimalist. He barely yeah. plays. And second, what he does choose to play is so just unique and interesting and not what I would have thought to do in a million years. I, I agree. It's hard to call him a rhythm guitar player. He plays like um, 
counterpoint, like counter melody, basically. Right. Um, but he's so unique because kind of because the position he's in, like there's a piano player there also. So like he doesn't have to provide, be the only one providing harmony to the song. You know, he has room to, to play other stuff. That's a big part of why all those members are unique is because they're in the position to be unique, which some other bands, you're playing a more rigid style or something. I think part of it too is, you know, he says in the movie, the, the, the documentary, the Bob Weir documentary on Netflix, that yeah, he one. modeled his guitar playing on McCoy Tyner's work with, uh, with Coltrane. So he was basically providing the counterpoint, like you mentioned, on the guitar to Jerry, the way McCoy was with uh, his piano part to Coltrane. And I've heard some people even dissect it further and say that Jerry is McCoy Tyner's right hand and Bob Weir is his left hand. And <laughs> that that's like in praise of McCoy Tyner as being like, he's so badass. He's both of those guys in one. But I think it's true. He came from a different instrument, like Phil coming from, you know, a, a, a trumpet background brought something different sensibility wise to the bass. And I think Bob looking at it from a piano perspective was a different take on it. They're all influenced by jazz too. I mean, just coming from that time period, they're not there playing bebop or like what I guess we'd call straight ahead jazz, but they're approaching every song the same way that a jazz musician would. I mean, Jerry definitely, every song that he takes a solo through um, where he's soloing over the changes of the song, like the same part of the song he would sing over, he learns the melody. And, and on his instrument. And maybe he doesn't play the melody every solo, some solos he doesn't play it at all, but just being able to reference it and understand like the rhythm of the melody and where those notes go at what time is very important. That's a big banjo thing. Every banjo solo is only the melody. That's all they teach you for how to do a banjo solo. And that's part of his background. Yeah, he's so heavily banjo influenced in his guitar playing. That's part of the unique uh, quality of his guitar playing is like, that's such a different style of playing. And he brings that to the guitar. I love it. That, um, that isolated Bob track that you were just referring to, Kyle, I've listened to a couple of times. And one of the songs on there is like, um, it's all over now, which is like, I'm guessing, so I could be wrong, people, listeners out there. Um, but I think it's uh, based around a blues, maybe like a three-chord blues tune. And he's playing on rhythm guitar, like a harmonized version of the melody underneath Jerry's solo. It's just, it, it makes it more interesting than kind of just being a flat, I don't know, if they're playing an E, just kind of strumming an E chord. Yeah, and it's definitely different than what Keith Richards and, and Brian Jones were playing on the Stones version, mm -hmm. for sure. You know, on that, the aforementioned isolated track, the the magic is the transition between China and I know. <laughs> yeah. Bob yeah. tears it up on that. Um, after being so sparse and minimalist <laughs> in most of the show, he really like takes over at that point. And it's really something to hear. I, I like that. 
Yeah, I think they open with like "Let the Good Times Roll," and he's like playing like maybe like the bass note of a chord here and there, or something like that. And then yeah, come China Rider, he's all in there. Another good uh, example of his playing is in the you know to to see it visually. It's it's one thing to listen to it, but when you're watching the original Grateful Dead movie, uh, Eyes of the World in particular, Bob Weir is doing some really really cool stuff on that. And that, like you said, the jazz influence is super obvious in Eyes of the World. I mean, that's yeah, that's a straight that's, up jazz tune. Basically. Yeah, I think I don't know what key it's in, but they're using a major seven. I'm pretty sure. So e it's major just, seven. Yeah, E major seven. You play as well. I only play acoustic, so the all the other stuff is beyond me. I play the banjo, guitar. So, Mike, is this your your theme? Did you put us together because we are guitar nerds in? Uh, way is that is that where the team groupings got or did you just draw us out of a hat Nah, yeah that's that's what i was thinking it's like the guitarist game there are many guitarist games coming on this team's format but this is the first one also luke is going next week and kyle this is like your uh um chance of redemption against luke after he took you out in game four i believe did we get that question wrong? Well, I, you haven't submitted anything yet. Uh, <laughs> Kyle said 1991. Oh, yeah, yeah. Does everyone agree they heard Vince and Bruce on that one? Uh, yeah, I like your 91, actually. So yeah. it could be as early as September of, of 90 uh, and as late as, I guess, early 92 before uh, Bruce split for the most he, part. He, I think he did some later 92s as well. I think he was playing but, with the range. But like sporadically. 100%. So 91 is a safe bet, but I know that Mike likes to fuck us. So yeah, it could, he does like to throw like some random shit. One of those Madison get, Square Gardens from 90 or something. Bruce and Vince, can we get like half a point off or something? <laughs> no, let me check with the judges real quick. Oh, uh, they're saying no. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 91 is the safe bet. Okay. Any objections? Okay. The weight. At Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey on June 17th, 1991. You guys put up three zeros in a row. Oh, Finished yeah. with a final score of six. Nice work. Joseph, run back that um, Vince uh, Bruce criticism just as a greatest hit. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about the two uh, piano players do you not like? Yeah, so I'm trying to remember what I said last time. Guitar and piano are very similar instruments. They both can be melody instruments or harmony instruments. So when you have a band with two guitar players and two piano players, we're having two pianos provide harmony at the same time, along with a third guitar providing harmony. There's a lot going on and not a huge amount of open space. Jared, what do you think? It wasn't for a sound thing. I think that Vince needed some molding and Bruce was just there for that. I think if they could have had Bruce the whole time, they would have, but they couldn't. I don't think Bruce was willing to tour with the dead as long as, I mean, at that point, if you say, yes, I'm going to be your keyboardist, who knows? It could be for the next 10 years of your life. And they're a big touring band and Bruce already had a career. So they needed him to mold Vince. I don't think I looked at it as like, ah, they're trying to have too much. It was just a transition that needed to happen. What about you, Kyle? I saw shows in 89 and 90 with, with Brent, and then I saw some shows in 91 and 92 with Vince and, and Bruce. I never saw him without Bruce in the 90s. 
Um, I'm torn because I really like Bruce and I really don't like Vince, but I don't think it's <laughs> Vince's fault. He's just not a good yeah. fit for the band. Yeah. A lot of people aren't a good fit for the band. Um, he was great in the tubes, you know, I mean, they were like an early MTV darling band with, uh, what's that one song? Uh, was he the singer of the tubes as well? I just heard their song on the radio. Like he was, he sang, ago, but I don't like, think he was singing? their main singer. Okay. He just did what he did with the dead. Yeah. Except and for that stupid song. The MTV era one, you mean like the early nineties one or the, yeah, uh, they had a popular 80s. song that would, and it just popped up on the radio when I was heading to work. One in a million girls. Yeah, so he's not the lead singer of. It was even before that, though. He's not the one actually singing that song, right? He's just no. singing the backups. Okay. I think so. Yeah, I'm not that uh, into the tubes. Yes. Oh no. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I read something to answer Kyle's question actually with someone else's opinion. I read something a good take online the other day that Bruce was actually the most talented Grateful Dead member. I could see that. It's not a crazy answer, Joseph. No. I mean, he no. went to Berkeley. Bruce he has is good. like official, you know, like real training, which is unique in that band. It's not like Frank Zappa's band where they all went to Berkeley <laughs> and Juilliard and that this is yeah. a different kind of, you know. Um, congratulations to all three of you. Six is like pretty good. We only whiffed on one of them. That's not bad. Yeah. You know, some of those were tough. Like you threw us. We bid you good night. Come on, man. No, no music. Just that was pretty no, tough. You saved our ass on that one, Jared. We owe you. Oh no! One. I mean, it yeah. would have just been one point difference if we couldn't figure it out. You know. But this yeah, might. That was awesome. Remember, Luke's out there somewhere. Uh, that's a perfect segue. As I teased earlier, Luke is out there somewhere. He will be here next week to try to beat your guys' score alongside his teammates Caleb and Riley. Caleb won the first episode of Guest of the Year ever, and Riley was a finalist in episode four, ultimately lost to Luke. So she'll be teaming up with Luke, and together with Caleb, they'll be trying to beat a score of six. Tough task, but a great squad. So yeah, we'll see what they can do next week. But Kyle, Joseph, and Jared, thank you so much for doing it. Appreciate you uh, coming on. Okay, subscribe to Guest of the Year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for all the show links, including other podcast services and our new YouTube channel link. Go to guestoftheyear.net. We just interviewed Dogs in a Pile, the awesome jam band, and had them guest years. And we're going to be doing it with other bands too. So check out our YouTube channel via guestoftheyear.net. And if you want to be contestant on the show, sponsor the show, or make comments and ask questions, email us at infoguestoftheyear.net. The team format is already set, but if you want to be on it next time or if you want to be on the show when we start recording again in August, yeah, just shoot us an email, info guestier.net. Thanks to Dylan, as always, for drawing the poster. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our amazing tapers whose recordings made this show possible. To our contestants this week, thanks for playing. And remember, it's all one song anyway. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night, and I bid you good night, good night, good night.